Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! We're going to move into a time of communion. And as part of stepping into communion, um, I want to talk a little bit about something that I know most of you are here for, first century rabbinical training. So uh, don't worry, we're, we're going to get there. If you uh, grew up in the church or if you heard kind of church stories, and even if you didn't, hopefully I can explain it in, in, in such a way it will make sense. But one of the core moments and stories is that Jesus, as a rabbi, goes out and calls disciples and I grew up hearing this story over and over again, that, that Peter was out fishing, that him and his brother were out fishing, and then Jesus showed up and says, drop your nets and come and follow me. And every youth group and church service I ever heard that, the takeaway was, if Jesus came to you and said, will you follow me, would you drop everything to follow Jesus? And I remember thinking, ooh, probably not. That's weird. I was told not to take candy from strangers. I'm just going to follow a man who says, come follow me and like leave my family and my job to go do it. This seems against best practices. And then once I heard a teaching uh, from Rob Bell that was really helpful in kind of exploring some more of um, the environment around it. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, the first thing is, if you know that Jewish men in the first century, they all would have had a school that they would have gone to, starting at the age of six. And this was called Bet Safer. And what it would be is from six to ten, you would go to school, and the goal of that school would be to memorize the Pentateuch, which is just another way of saying the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament, the Torah, the, the Hebrew um, sacred text. So think of that. From 6 to 10, you're spending every single day reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy over and over again. And I know from having worked in churches, everyone's like, I'm going to read the Bible. That works until you get through Exodus, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I mean, I don't know what those do to those kids. And these, these Torah teachers, these Torah rabbis, they had a phrase that they would use for any students that would act up or weren't getting it. They would say, go and ply your trade. Basically, it's time to go. This isn't working out for you. You need to go home and go find someone to teach you a trade, or you need to go back to your family and have them teach you a way of making money, because it's not going to be being a religious teacher. It's not going to be by being a rabbi. This would move on from ages 10 to 14 to the Bet Talmud, and this was kind of the second step. From this point, you would have, you would already have the Pentateuch memorized. Not like I can take a test to get a pretty good level of like competency, I understand it, memorized. Then you would move on to have Joshua to Malachi memorized. All of it. And this is also, these notes are incredibly important to know that when Jesus is referencing Old Testament scriptures, this wasn't something that they were vaguely familiar with, and later they would go home and Google it. They knew it. 
This was everything, the art, the literature, the music, the movies. It was all held within the scripture. This was deeply embedded, which is why, on a side note, it's problematic to have just New Testament Christians. It's one document for a reason. So they, again, were trying to memorize this. And this time, even more people were eliminated. You didn't make the cut. The last one would be from age 15 on. And this would be the equivalent for us to understand. This is the Ivy League of religious um, learning. So at this point, this was a highly elite school. And not everyone got to be a part of it. Most people at this point have been told to go and ply their trade. And what's interesting is that the goal of this teaching to, to become uh, a disciple is that you would then become a rabbi, you could become a teacher, and your interpretation of it was referred to as your yoke, not Y-O-L-K. I'm not talking about eggs, but like a yoke that an oxen would wear. It was your interpretation was called it. So again, this puts a whole new context when Jesus is like, come and follow me. My yoke is light. My interpretations of the scripture is easy to bear. Where there were other rabbis that had used their decade plus of memorizing to create a religious system that excluded most people. So when Jesus comes to a fisherman and a tax collector and says, come and follow me, Jesus is going to the ones that were told to go ply their trade. Jesus was going to the ones that didn't have the option of pursuing a rabbi. And to be a rabbi and disciple was the top of the societal bracket for Jewish men. And again, it's a patriarchy, so it was just Jewish men. But this is as good as it possibly could get. So why did they drop their nets and go? Because they just got invited to the opportunity of a lifetime. This morning, we are going through our liturgical flow, and we're looking at the release of shame. And one of the reasons why we want to look at this release of shame, which is uh, the definition we're using for shame, is this narrative that I'm not enough. There's something wrong. There's something deficient at the very core of who I am. Is that while this may have been tied into the Christian narrative, this is not a part of the Christian story. The heart of the Christian story is the God of the universe comes and calls you and me and us. And Jesus says, of course you belong. Of course you are enough. You were made enough. And anything that blocks that is when we stop seeing and believing. When we believe a lie about our identity, that's when we get in our own way. And I want to set this up for what we're going to be uh, having people share with us later, but also for communion. The communion table can be a place where a lot of us feel a lot of shame. Communion tables tied to the Last Supper, this meal that Jesus had with his closest followers before he was crucified. And again, the story of the crucifixion is Jesus had to die because of you and all your dirty sins. Instead of understanding that Jesus moves to allowing this oppressive system to have its way over him because of his deep belief in you. The invitation of the communion table is to see within yourself the person that God created, 
And that is intrinsically enough. And it is intrinsically loved. And it already belongs. So as you come to the table this morning, my hope is that you would come knowing you belong. You belong. And the way we do communion here is we have people go back and sit in their seats and we take the bread separately. It's individual. As you take the bread, may you take the bread repeating, I belong. I belong. And then we're going to come up, have a time of prayer, and we're going to take the cup together as a sign of our community in Christ. Would you stand now and come to receive? So this morning, to lead us further into um, this conversation, when I thought of all the different folks that we have that make up Cascade, uh, there is a particular couple that one is a therapist who does a lot of incredible work in uh, self-compassion and self-love, which I thought, if we're releasing shame, that seems helpful. And the other is a software engineer turned engineering manager. And I was like, well, sure, yeah. Um, So we are very excited. Uh, Also, they are uh, two parts of a three-person hosted podcast called You Are Infinitely Loved, uh, which is fantastic. So would you welcome Coos and Lindsay Bong. Well, hello. This is not my first time up front, but it's still terrifying. Uh, this is Kusa's first time up front, so buckle it's up. It's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, when Kurt asked us a few weeks ago, hey, I want to do a series of talk on shame, and you all are the first people I thought of. I was telling this to Connie last week, and I was like, Connie, can you believe this? Kurt, you know, wants us to do shame, and we, he thought of us. And she's like, oh, yeah, I talked to them about it. I agree. So there was a meeting in which people from our church decided that we were like the spokespeople for shame. So here we are. <laughs> you know, um, I kind of want to make it a little lighthearted because shame is heavy, and we all have it. And I feel like most of my work as a therapist is unpacking shame for people, helping them to identify where it is, what it looks like, and how it's coming out. And so, you know, we're going there. We're getting a little deep with that. Last week, um, Harriet and Marilyn spoke on grief. And I don't know if you all were thinking about this, but this week I was thinking a lot about how grief can kind of, um, there are parts of it that are tied to shame, how fear and shame, uh, yeah, fear and shame are kind of subsets of grief. And when they use a definition, I think maybe Kurt said this a few weeks ago, but grief is caused by broken expectations. And so when we think about that context of what we've already been talking about, I wanted to read uh, the definition of what shame is from like a dictionary. There were lots of definitions and they were all interesting. It's funny how you can pick a definition that fits what you want to talk about. (laughs) So the definition I chose was um, shame is an unpleasant, self-conscious emotion typically associated with a negative evaluation of the self, withdrawal motivations, and feelings of distress, exposure, mistrust, powerlessness, and worthlessness. So just some light stuff for your Sunday. 
Um, you know, a lot of times we can go to this place of what is the difference between guilt and shame? Because a lot of times in my office, I see it show up as people are thinking it's tied together to the same thing. So when I look at guilt, guilt is I've done something wrong and there's a way for me to fix it. If I feel guilt, that's a great thing to have because it says something isn't aligned with my values and I need to course correct. So for instance, if I um, and really, I mean, this isn't completely an example that is not real not life. based on true story. <laughs> if I were to have an argument with Coos, never happens. Um, and I were to say hurtful things, never happens. Um, and later on, I were to feel guilt about that. Would I, the healthy thing for me to do would be to apologize, to say, I notice that I've done this thing that is wrong. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? I will try to be different. And so the difference between shame is shame is saying, guilt is saying, I've done something wrong. Shame is saying, I am wrong. Something about me is wrong. So again, I'm trying to keep this lighthearted and fun, but it's just shame. I mean, here we are. <laughs> so why do we want to talk about um, shame at church? Um, the church should be known for being a really healing place. And for some of us, that's not always true. That sometimes the shame is actually put on us from our church experience. But I think that we have this beautiful opportunity right here to um, let go of some of the shame that we're holding and to be instead this beautiful place of here's how we heal shame. We do it together. So, do, 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 do. read my notes. So basically, I kind of want to look at a lot of times we are pushing down shame all the time, and we don't even know what it's doing. As we push things down, though, they are going to come up and to erupt. And so it's really a really wise thing for us to unpack the areas of shame um, before they become really problematic. So how we do that is we just talk about it. That's the interesting thing. Um, we don't actually, there's no magic pill, unfortunately that rids us of shame, but self-awareness is the first place we go. Where are the areas in which I'm feeling, I'm gonna read the definition, we're feeling distress, exposure, mistrust, powerlessness, worthlessness. When we can identify where I feel that and what, when do I feel that? When am I feeling exposure? When am I feeling distrust? When am I feeling worthlessness? That is going to be the place we go to to find the shame, to uproot it. So. A lot of our shame has to do with identity, how I see myself and how I'm showing up in the world. And so Coos was going to share a story of, I mean, as the shame couple, he is going to share a story of when he experienced some deep shame and how it affected his identity. Yeah, so we were talking about shame and we discussed how it's an irony that there's a shame to bring up what we feel shameful about. Because you feel like, ah, that is so shameful, but I want to bring it up, but then you feel shame that you experience the shame. Um, Let's just expose it now. We're gonna share all of our shame with you so we feel good and processed. <laughs> Go. Yeah, I, this morning, I told Lindsay, I said, you know, this happened last year, but remembering it again, writing it down, and rereading it, it's, it still has such a strong power. Like, 
I told her that I got emotional just reading about it. Like it's so. Here we go. So um, tears allowed. Tears allowed. Space. Yes. So it was um, my seventh year at this company, and I thought I was invincible. I got to work from home. I had a great pay, unlimited PTO, amazing health benefits, annual paid vacations, you name it. Um, I had actually, because I had been there for about seven years, I thought about quitting many, many, many times. But it was such a comfortable job, very flexible. So I thought, why, you know, why rock the boat? Um, and then the unthinkable happened. In November of 2017, I was let go. Um, it was quite a shock, but I felt okay, simply because I had wanted to quit many times before, but this time I was let go, so great, severance pay. Um, and because, of, because I was in the tech industry, I was very sure I would get a, a job so quickly. Um, in the beginning, I felt like I had the option to be very specific about the kind of job that I want. You know, still remote job, and maybe I could get paid more. Or we had talked about moving abroad. So I started looking at work in Europe. Um, and I made it to later stage, interview stages with a lot of companies, but I just didn't get any of them. Um, Days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and I was still without a job. Um, you can imagine how quickly I, start, I started dropping those work ideals from I want to work from home and travel to just give me anything. I'll, I'll even take a pay cut. Um, and I was desperate for something, for anything, and uh, just so I have a sense of security and fear totally overwhelmed me. Um, I had over 100 interviews that ended up nowhere. And it made me feel like a big loser. The feeling of rejection added up and I felt really stuck. And that's when shame started creeping up. The shame of not being able to get a job after interviewing for almost seven months, I said, unkind things to myself, like, is there something wrong with me? What is wrong with you? Why can't you get a job? Like, just a lot of things. And the shame of bringing shame to my family back in Indonesia, because not having a job is like a big no-no. Like, you sh how are you gonna support your family? You have to always have a job. And, uh, and all of this shame added up, and one day, I thought about ending it all. I thought about ending my life. Um, just because I thought it would be easier for everyone. And then the shame of even thinking this thought came up. And so you can see how shame can take you on this unending spiral of more shame. Um, running alongside this fear and shame though, is this voice that kept whispering in my heart. Reminding me who God has made me to be, reminding me that no job could 
and should define who I am or give me the comfort I needed. Um, I learned a lot of self-love tools and meditation was hands down the thing that kept me going. And I actually want to share a vision that I had during one of my meditation sessions. Um, I was on a, on a boat with my family in the middle of the ocean. There were moments of calm water and then moments of rough storm. And I saw myself working very hard in the middle of the storms to keep the boat afloat. It felt very manageable at first, but eventually I started tiring out. And then out of nowhere, I saw different people appearing on the boat at different times um, to help keep the boat steady, uh, to keep me and my family safe. I saw Kurt, um, Josh, one of my closest friends in Austin, my coworkers, and many other people. There were so many people that showed up exactly when I needed help the most. They celebrated the small wins with me, grief with me, empathized with me, encouraged me, and gave me the space to just be. Through that, I knew I was not alone, and there was no need to be afraid. There was actually a, a piece of work by Scott Erickson that I really resonated during this time. Uh, it was an image of a boat also in the middle of the ocean with clouds and lightning hovering above it. On the boat was this telescope with a heart at the end of it. And it reminds me that no matter how hard things may get, I should always set my sight on love and let that be my true north. Looking back at those seven to eight months of um, hard times, I'm starting to change the story from the months I was unemployed to the months I got to discover even more of who I truly am without any labels. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> it makes me feel emotional hearing that story because I was experiencing that time in a really different way. Um, have you heard the, the saying, the cobbler's children have no shoes? Well, the counselor's husband gets no empathy. <laughs> I responded in a way that was, um, you got a no, no big deal. One no is closer to the yes, you got this. Like, I look back now, it's pretty obnoxious. Because for me, the fear was, um, if Coos can't see himself or who he is and how I see him, then the boat has sunk. We are in big trouble. And so instead of offering presence and empathy and understanding, I was trying to be um, an unhelpful cheerleader. And so I think when we look at shame and how we process it with each other, it is very uncomfortable to watch someone suffering. It's, it's so uncomfortable. And yet, bearing witness is the way that we hold each other's shame. It isn't through fixing it. It isn't through um, having the solution they need to get out of this place. But instead, it's just being with them and saying, I see this. Um, I'm here with you, and I'm going to remind you of who you are. And so this is where the identity piece ties into shame of when we know who we are and we are so clear on who, what our identity is, shame can't take root. So in the places where Coos was at his lowest, when he remembered that I'm a child of God, I'm, in, I'm loved no matter what, I, nothing I can do can change God's love for me, that's when I think he was able to um, release the shame he had and talk about it. 
And so I think when he talks about shame begets shame begets shame, the shame of feeling shame. How many times am I going to say shame? <laughs> but this feeling, um, we have to, like, stop the loop. And the way we stop the loop is to acknowledge we are all experiencing shame in some way, in some form, and to be courageous enough to look at it. Where am I feeling a shame, and is it serving me? I mean, probably not. Um, but what's it trying to tell me? You know, if shame were, I like the analogy we gave last week, if grief came and sat at a table with you, what would it say? If shame came and sat at a table with you as a friend, what would it say? What would, what's it trying to tell you? And for most of it, it's trying to, shame is trying to tell us where we're not aligned with our values, how we're not living the way we need to be living. And so it's actually a really helpful tool when we can acknowledge it. So, kus, um, oh yeah, self-compassion, that's a big one. I should hit that. <laughs> when we were organizing this talk, kus is um, very organized and I am less so. <laughs> So um, I'm going to hit some things I missed. Um, a big piece of reducing shame is introducing self-compassion to the story. So when I say that, um, we often in our heads talk to ourselves like we would never talk to anyone else. I would never look at a friend and say, oh my gosh, you look fat in that outfit. But I can look in the mirror and say that. I would never tell a coworker, that was a really dumb mistake. How could you be so stupid? I mean, I would likely get fired, <laughs> but it, we would never speak that way to other people, and yet our inner thought is often crazy critical and really harsh and abusive. And so when we introduce self-compassion to that storyline, we start to say, I will only talk to myself with love and kindness. Um, I start to say, oh, man, I made a mistake at work. That's really embarrassing. It's painful. And... That's okay. I'm human. I get to make mistakes. I'm going to move forward. Here's the plan out. Whereas shame just sinks us. It says, yeah, that's right. You are terrible. You're never going to get better. Work is always going to be hard. You're going to be fired. You're going to be demoted. And so we kind of short circuit that loop by saying the most loving, kind things that we would say to a friend in the same situation. And so I think even with Kus, um, he did lots of meditation during this time. And most of it was centered on self-compassion. And so he wanted to I want to add another thing. I think the topic of the release of shame, it doesn't mean that if we talk about it, then that shame is going to go away. Right? Um, I am a good example of that. I still see it. I still feel it. Um, but the idea is that when you're able to share your shame and be able to sit in it, hopefully over time that it'll start to lose its power, just like a scar. It hurts when, when you fall, right? But over time, the scar might still be there, but you're just looking at it saying, that happened, I acknowledge it. And that's the thing with shame is that it's not just gonna go poof, no longer there. Um, so I think that's a really important thing to remember. Um, every time it comes up, just ask, your shame. What are you trying to teach me this time? What is it that I should be learning about this time? So. I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that um, a lot of us can have an issue with shame that we think we do all the work. We go to therapy, we talk about it, we journal, we do all the things that we know to release that and it's still there. 
and then we feel failure that I can't, or, or failure, or this is always going to be part of who I am and my story. And so, like you said, every time we engage with the shame, and often we're going to circle it over and over again, there's never going to be a time where I have a body image issue that I'm not going to revisit later. But every time I revisit it, I'm going to hit on it as, oh, I've been here. Hello, shame, my old friend. Um, I've been here before, and I know it works. I know what helps to alleviate some of the pain, and that's self-compassion and gentleness. And maybe you're going to show up again, and that's going to be okay, because every time I hit up on you, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to be in a different place. I'm going to be in a more loving, self-accepting place. And so that drains the energy and the power that shame can hold over us. So now... So Kusa's wanting to lead you um, on a meditation, and take it away. If you're com comfortable doing this, let's go ahead and close our eyes, make sure both our feet are on the ground. For our breathing practice, take a slow, deep breath into your stomach, hold it in for a second, then exhale. Keep repeating this. When you feel like your mind is wandering, it's all right. Bring your attention back to your breathing. As you breathe, unclench your jaws, drop your shoulders, and loosen up all the tightness in your body. Shame might have surfaced for you during our talk today, and I want to acknowledge that. It is a very difficult emotion to sit with as it brings a lot of discomfort and pain. It is normal why we would want to put those things that bring us shame in the darkest, deepest part of our hearts. They can make us feel less adequate and worthy of love. So we hide them, pretend they're not there but every once in a while, they'll resurface and re-trigger all the things. One of the meditation teachers I follow said, when the dark comes, tell it what it longs so deeply to hear, that you are loved, that you are loved in all of your shadow and loved in all of your light. When shame comes, dig deep, sit in it, and keep reminding yourself of your worth in the eyes of God, that you were created worthy of all the love in the world, in spite of all the shame you may be carrying. If you uh, would stand, if you're able, we want to send out. May you be filled with a deep bravery to release the shame and the messages that we have that we are not enough on a day-by-day -day basis. And may we receive the voice of God, the voice that says that we are seen and we are loved and we belong on a day-by-day -day basis. And may we share that voice of belonging with all we come in contact with. Amen and amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.